Hi, welcome to the Bookish Things Podcast. I'm Scott. I'm Eric. And this episode we're doing Ernest Hemingway's A Farewell to Arms. So we'll start with plot summary. So the main character is Federico Henry. He's an American serving in the, uh, as a medic in the Italian army. The uh, first part of the book takes place uh, in a break between the fighting between the Italian army and the Austrian army. And book one ends with Henry being injured, right, by the uh, Austrian mortar fire and being sent to a hospital in Milan. Right. Um, but before that, he meets Catherine Barclay. Yes. He's a, a, a nurse, a British nurse. Scottish, even. Okay, she's Scottish. Yeah. Okay. I think that's still part of Britain. Uh, it's yeah, it's it's part it's part of the United Kingdom. Um, so book two is really a romance novel, right? The, it's the romance that develops between Catherine Barclay and uh, Henry as there she gets sent to the the hospital in Milan as well, right? Um, and then let's see, let's see. Part three is what? It's happened again. It has happened again, but they don't know that because they're not listening. <laughs> they didn't hear this part, so... We're going to have like eight eight takes before you actually figure no, out we shouldn't, your No, we shouldn't have eight takes. Right. Um, so, okay, book two. Um, right, they fall in love and Catherine gets pregnant. And then uh, Henry is sent back to the front. Right, and then book three, we see a, a gritty war novel. Right, mm-hmm. many soldiers are killed by friendly fire in front of Henry. Henry himself is almost killed um, by the Italian army. There's a there's a massive retreat. There's and, a massive retreat. Yeah, and in the middle of the retreat, everyone's trying. All of the Italian army is trying to get out. Lots of people are like defecting and running. Soldiers are starting to kill the enlist or the uh, officers, and so Henry and his band of like other paramedics and ambulance drivers are trying to just get out. It was him and some engineers, right? They're, yeah. They're, they were retreating. Some car boys. Yeah. But, and, um, so he, after almost being killed by, uh, the Italian army, he, he deserts, right? And, and that's what happens at the end of book three. Book four is Henry reunites with Catherine and they, they escape to Switzerland before, um, before Henry gets arrested by the Italian army, right? Where they would, they would kill him. Uh, I don't think he... Yeah, they were, he was trying to escape the Italian army by going over to Switzerland. Yeah, to, to Switzerland. And then when he's there, the police there question him, but he lies. And yeah, the Swiss, yeah, Swiss, Swiss police, like, yeah. they, they question him, but yeah. Um, so let's see. Uh, book five, Henry uh, and Catherine are in Switzerland. Their son is stillborn and Catherine dies. And that's really it. That's that's the end of the book. Yeah. So that's that's the whole plot. I looked at the very last paragraph right before we started, just to kind of remember where it leaves off, and it quite literally leaves with the last paragraph is a conversation between him and the doctor after the doctor had told him she's gonna be okay, she's not gonna die, and then uh, Henry's sitting there with her as she's unconscious, and then the doctor says she's pretty bad. We don't know. She just starts to hemorrhage. She might die. And then the last paragraph is after she's died, him talking to the doctor and the doctor just saying, can I take you to your hotel? And him saying, no, um, I'm just going to be here. And the very last sentence, I think I can look it up because I have my beautiful coffee next to me. The last sentence just says, 
It was like saying goodbye to a statue. After a while, I went out and left the hospital and walked back to the hotel in the rain. The end. <laughs> I was reading before this that um, in the like brand fancy new version of A Farewell to Arms, I don't know if it's still Scribner and Sons, that they've included all of the endings that Hemingway wrote for it at the end, and that there's something like 47 endings total that he wrote. <laughs> and I don't think you could get a better ending than this. I don't think... I think it perfectly sums up everything this book is about. Because this is a really broad book. You don't see it when you first get started, and it doesn't look like it from the outset. It's not something huge, like a Russian like Tolstoy or something like that. It's like a little over 300 pages, but this book is all about like the biggest things in life. Like war and peace and life and death and love and loneliness. And I don't think any of it would have come together and hit as sharply if it didn't have that big moment Just at the end. Just abrupt ending? Right. After something really climactic? Right. Dramatic? And I think that a lot of the criticism here is that it's extremely telegraphed, which it kind of is. As soon as you get into book five, you start to, like, get hints of things. Um, and then even way back, like, in book two... Foreshadowing the ending, you mean? Yeah, yeah, foreshadowing the ending. Even in book two, um, there's moments where Catherine says that she's afraid of the rain and that she often sees herself dead in it. And so as soon as it kind of, like, starts to storm, they leave Italy in the night in the storm and row. Right. When I first read this book, I, that is where I assumed something bad would happen. Like, the boat would sink. Because the, the barman whose boat they take keeps telling him, like, I hope you don't drown. That was a really tense moment for yeah. me when I was reading is, is as, yeah, Henry was, like, rowing the boat through that through the storm, I guess. Yeah, something that, like 30-something kilometers down the lake. Yeah, and, I was expecting them to get caught. Right, and they keep say, the barman just keeps saying, like, don't pay me now for the boat. Pay me if you survive. Yeah. And so I figured something would happen the first time, but then... It almost gives you like a fake happy ending. Like the, the very early part of book five is then they get to Switzerland, they lie their way through the cops, and they start to live very happily in a cabin. Yeah. And there's the, the, I think the very opening of chapter five just talks about them living. They live in a little cabin. There's a woman and a husband who live below them that bring up their food, that light their stoves. They're having this amazing time. They walk. They're extremely happy until the like, beginning of birth and labor. And then it just all collapses. Yeah. A couple of things you, you mentioned that I want to talk about. So you talked about the things that are that this book is about. It, it being about life. It being about death. Yes. It being about love uh, and loneliness. So like those are things that the only other thing I've read by uh, Hemingway is his complete short stories collection. Which we is, have to read more Hemingway for this. It's, it's really good. Um. But a lot of similar like things thematically. Very so, much so. Yeah, a lot of like romantic stories, a lot of death, a lot of violent death. Uh, yeah. So um, the other thing is the ending. Um, I. <laughs> so I, I forgot. I didn't. I this is my first time reading it, and I didn't know how it how it ended. I did see. I mentioned to this earlier to you off mic that Silver Linings Playbook, if you watch it, gives away right. the ending, kind of. Yeah. Um, there's, there's, a, there's a hilarious moment. Um, who's, who's the actor? Bradley Cooper. Bradley like, Cooper, yeah. Throws the book out the... He's like, what the fuck? And throws the book out the window. 
Um, and that was kind of my reaction too to the to the ending was like what the fuck, and I was kind of upset by it. it I suppose at first it is very very stark. Like I feel like even with some of the foreshadowing, I don't think anybody the first time sees this coming. This was the second time that I've read this, and I'm a huge Hemingway fan, like easily one of my favorite authors. And the first time I had read this was in college, probably now like almost four years ago. And I always used to go to a coffee shop near my college and I would read there in the hot summers. They would like keep the big doors open like at the front and the back and there'd always be a nice breeze, like, perfect reading environment. And I would always be happy when I read there. And I read a lot of Hemingway there. And I remember when I was reading this, it was one of those warm afternoons, like everything's cool, everything's going good, having a coffee, jazz in the background. And I get to that last chapter where it wraps up and I feel like it ruined my entire day. <laughs> like... It's not something that, it's not an ending or a book that I feel like anyone would cry over, but it's almost like one of those movies where you watch it and it, you don't cry for like 15 minutes when it's done, but it like fucks up the next week of your life. Cause you're like, you just, like how hard the themes of the book hit. You're like, life is extremely fragile. And like, that's kind of one of the terrible things about it is because Hemingway writes so realistically that this is believable, that this could happen in your life just as easily as it happened anywhere. Right. And, and I feel like anybody who's had a, like an extremely sad moment in their life has felt that kind of like, it's almost like jumping into a cold pool. Like it almost takes your breath away for an instant as you start to like realize what's happening. Like if you've ever been awakened by like a phone call from a hospital and you have the exact same feeling of like, oh, this, this can't be happening, this isn't right. And I think that, I mean, like I said, I think it's a perfect ending for this book because it wouldn't truly be a war story without it. Like, there's lots of death leading up to it. There's death in, like, sure. the engineers as they're trying to escape from Italy. But all of that almost feels, like, very fake and kind of, like, reduced and quiet compared to, like, how hard that hits you. Yeah, I mean, the other characters that are being killed off, they're tertiary characters. Exactly. So when they get killed off, I mean, it has an impact on Henry to some extent. Usually he, these are people that he doesn't know too well. Right. And it doesn't have much of an impact on the reader when these characters, when these soldiers are being killed. Um, but yeah, with Catherine, it's it's different. I mean, she's the other main character next to Henry, so... <laughs> Yeah, her death is more uh, impactful. I feel like maybe I should have seen the death coming, seen the ending coming, mm -hmm. uh, seen Catherine's death coming because uh, I did read the short story or his his complete collection of short stories before reading this. So I feel like maybe I should have seen it coming, but um, but yeah, I didn't. It it uh, took me by surprise. I like the way that you introduced the different books as almost being separate kind of novels onto themselves like you described book two is almost a romance novel book three gets back to a war novel and i think that's why these things are so impactful because when you're in the middle of the italian retreat and like you know someone one of the soldiers and the engineers gets shot and killed you expect it there's these really tense moments where they're like hiding in barns and you're expecting death because so many people are dying henry gets to like where the like quote battle police are which are just enlisted soldiers who are just killing people for, for feeling like they let the army down. Yeah. You expect it. It doesn't come out of a surprise. And in a weird way, the book is almost structured with like a little bit of war, a little bit of romance, 
a lot of war, and then a lot of romance at the end. You're expecting this big romantic getaway, even as tense and dangerous as the boat scene is as they escape to Switzerland. It's extremely romantic. They land and they have a nice breakfast. Yeah. And it's almost like... And they're this, so happy after, you know... Right. It's almost like this pattern escaping. of, like, war and romance goes back and forth that the fifth is just jammed together. It's almost like the death comes out of nowhere. Like, you're reading a romance novel, but then, like, the war gets mixed back in. Yeah. I mean, there's a difference in the kind of war novel that we see in the first chapter. I mean, the first chapter, it's, it's a break in between the fighting between the Austrians... And, and the Italians, so right. the, the third book is a much, much grittier war novel than the first book is. <laughs> the first book is just a lot of dialogue about the war, and they're just talking about, you know, do you think the war will ever end? Who, you know, who do you think will win the war? And you get a sense that Henry has a little bit of a different perspective on the war than the other Italian soldiers because he's an American. Right. Um... And, and that brings me, I suppose, to what I want to mention is that the plot of this book is similar to Hemingway's own biography. So he was, <coughs> he drove an ambulance in World War I. Yes, for the Italian for, Army. For the Italian Army. Um, he does that a lot in his writing. Um, the Sun Also Rises, which I'm sure we'll get to on this podcast, is also extremely biographical. It's of his time living in Paris and Spain. And the characters in that novel directly are based on people in his life. And I believe he pulls the same thing for For Whom the Bell Tolls, and then later in his life for The Old Man and the Sea. They're all very... He, I mean, he, it's like he took the advice that someone said, like, write what you know extremely seriously. And he only wrote exactly, like, the experiences that he had with some embellishments. So he was injured in World War One. He did get sent to a hospital, and he did have a romance with a nurse while he was there. Yes, that's all true. Uh, thoughts on World War One? As far as so, this war was actually talked about um, through the cultural zeitgeist at the time uh, about a war that was kind of a holy war, a just war, a war <laughs> to end all wars. But Hemingway in this book uh, paints an image of World War One as really meaningless. Yeah, and I think he's almost a little ahead of the times with that. I mean, the first book, more than anything in this novel, it really hits hard with those themes of how boring war is. And I feel like you don't see a lot of that talked about in World War One and Two. You see a lot of that coming later toward like the Korean War and the Vietnam War. These are themes that get hit on hard by shows like MASH, where they're really just showing like how boring and inane and pointless war is, especially to the people that have like big big stakes in it that like these are people's jobs and when they're it's it's either all or nothing they're either extremely bored or they are dealing firsthand up close with death yeah so so there's a lot of authors who were in world war one and who wrote who 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 where the world war one influenced a lot of their work and so, um, you know, some of them are much more disillusioned. And I would say I think this, this falls into that camp of much more disillusioned kind of war novel. Um, I found Henry as a character to be sympathetic. Yes, very much um, so. Catherine Barclay. So a criticism of this book is that Hemingway's treatment of, of the character Catherine Barclay is sexist. Would you agree with that? Um, I'd agree in the same way that anything made in this time. It, the works reflect the attitudes of people during their times. A lot of people throw the same thing at The Sun Also Rises for anti-Semitism, 
because there is a Jewish character who's treated, I wouldn't say treated bad, but written as almost like the guy no one wants around. And I don't think it was intentional. I don't think Hemingway was a hateful person necessarily. I just think these were how things were said and thought of in those times. I don't know exactly when this book came out. I think it was 24, 26? No, it was later than that. Um, I know the copy I have is from the 40s, and I would still expect the same thing from a book written in the 40s. That it's almost just like you couldn't find like a movie made in the 30s where women were written about in a progressive way because society hadn't gotten there yet. It's almost... I think it's, it's misguided to look at ancient literature in such a modern lens. Without considering just that, that it was a more sexist time. Right. Like, right. I mentioned M.A.S.H. earlier, which I'm also a huge fan of. Um, grew up watching, like, tons of it. Uh, in the first, I think, season or so, I know it came from the movie, they have a roommate who only appears in, like, the first season, who's a black dude, and his name is Spearchucker. Like, there's no... It's not a nickname. It's not anything. That is what they call him. And that show, I mean, it was supposed to be in the Korean War of the 50s, but it came out in the 60s and 70s. It was still sexist and racist back then, not 40 years ago. It's going to be crazy sexist 80 years ago. Right. And I think actually for the time, like for the time he's writing, it's not as bad as a lot of other things. Right, yeah. So, I mean... There's admirable qualities. I mean, some of the, the dialogue is kind of sexist, especially the way that she talks about Henry. I mean, she talks about him as if he's her god, her religion, her entire reason for existence. So, but I mean, she's also somewhat brave, right, to try and escape with him. Absolutely. Um, to to serve as a nurse during the war, um, and yeah, I mean, she's. It's not like she's this character that you despise in the book and it's not like we despise her we don't despise her in any way and even if we did it's not like because she's a she's a woman or a female character and right. and the fact that she dies in childbirth uh is unfortunate but i mean that that is something that happens i find it really interesting um the almost like reflection that you see because in the in the second book as they're falling in love in this hospital in Milan, you there's a lot of dialogue from Catherine with things like, you won't leave me, will you? Like, I'm so happy with you. I'm nothing without you. When you go, I have nothing. And then in the fourth book, once uh, Henry has escaped the front and is back and meets up with her, he's, before they escape in the boat, he's saying the same things. She goes to, like, meet with another, another nurse friend, and he says, like, I'm terribly bored. Like, I have nothing when you're not here. Like, I don't exist when you're not here. It's almost like he's reflecting the exact same sentiment. And that's why I think this is one of the levels that this is a great book, that it follows that romantic path. In book one, he start, he meets her, and he starts out saying, like, I'm, I, I never intended to love her. He even lies directly to, to her. Yeah. She says, do you love me? And he says, yes, I lied. And then to, like, it slowly develops, and I think the extreme situation, it kind of, like, fosters this, like, intense relationship... But it's, it's an interesting thing. I mean, I wouldn't say that if we go back to, like, our last um, episode and novel, I wouldn't say that Catherine Barclay's written any more sexist than Daisy Buchanan or Jordan Baker, that both of those women are much, much more dis or unlikable 
but it's because of their personality. Someone could easily make the argument, oh, these characters are unlikable because they're women. This is a sexist novel. I don't think there's any of that. I mean, there are unlikable women in this novel, like the nurses when Henry is staying in Milan. Like, there's the one head nurse who's always, right. like, taking things from him and gets him kicked out for drinking. Like, she's unlikable, but it comes across as a much better written character. She's unlikable because she, you can tell immediately she's a stickler for rules and regulation. And I think the characters are kind of what makes this really amazing. <laughs> you, were, you were mad because we started and you asked if I took notes, and I didn't this week. I'm, I'm completely flipped. When we did Gatsby, I took like eight pages of notes in my notebook, and I have nothing now. But one of the things that I noticed, and I guess it's, it's kind of like my notes, but the characteristics and the characters in this are so strong. Book one starts, and I'm no English major like you, but in novels traditionally the first character you introduce is your main character the very first chunk of your or first paragraph even of your book sets the tone for the story and so what you know going into this book is that you learn later henry is a soldier but the first paragraph starts in the late summer of that year we lived in a house in a village that looked across the river and the plain to the mountains in the bed of the river there were pebbles and boulders dry and white in the sun and the water was clear and swiftly moving and blue in the channels. Troops went by the houses and down the road, and the dust they raised powdered the leaves of the trees. The trunks of the trees, too, were dusty, and the leaves fell early that year, and we saw the troops marching along the road, and the dust rising and the leaves, stirred by the breeze, falling, and the soldiers marching, and afterward the road bare and white, except for the leaves. This is a war novel. This is a book of death. And the first paragraph is nothing but descriptions of the leaves and the trees and the areas that surround. I think this is such a beautiful characterization and one of the reasons why I love Hemingway. I'm sure we'll spend like another 20 minutes talking just about Hemingway's writing style. But the first paragraph of the novel doesn't mention the narrator, doesn't mention any names. We know this is spoken from Henry's perspective, but he's a soldier who could not care less about the war. The only mention he has of soldiers is as they go by, they kick up dust and it gets on the leaves. That's the only thing he notices about them. Right. And when they leave, the trunks are a little dusty and the road's bare. He is a soldier, and it's almost foreshadowed, that he is a soldier who cares nothing of war. And I think he's just such an interesting character. It's structured that he is an American serving for the Italian army. And at one point there's a character when he's in Milan, I believe, who asks him, why are you serving with the Italian army? And he just says, mm, why not? I don't know. And it's, this, it's so strange to see this traditionally, like, extremely patriotic, nationalistic, you're going to die for your country, this role of a soldier. And he doesn't even belong to the country. Yeah. The only connection he has to Italy is that he speaks some Italian. Yeah, well, I guess he was, he was living in Italy... Right, before the war started. Right. And, and yeah, and so they say, like, why? And he was like, well, I don't know. I was, just, I was living here. Um, mm -hmm. So this is, I mean, at this point, he signs up. America hasn't even officially joined the war yet. There, yeah. So, so um, yeah. It's, it's just such an interesting characterization of someone who, you know, they don't have anything better to do. Yeah. So they're just going to join with Italy. They don't care about war. That's probably why he's an ambulance driver. He'd like to try to help people as best he can. The other thing I kept thinking about characterization in this read-through that I'd never noticed on the first one is I think it's mentioned early in book one that, and I could be wrong on this, but that somebody asks him his age and he says 19. 
And I found that extremely interesting because I kept noticing it as I read of like through the war parts, through the romance parts of like, how could people get like this? And I was like, oh yeah, he's 19. Like he's expected to deal with like war and life and loss and all of these things. And I couldn't handle those things now at like 26. I know I couldn't handle them at 19. And it, I don't know, I kept thinking back to like those crazy stories of like during World War II, there were people that were like 17 and lied to get in the army. And like how they were dealing with that, the same similar things. So yeah, extremely strong characterization through this. And I guess it's kind of a good segue into talking about um, Hemingway's writing style. Okay, If sure. there aren't other characters. I guess the other character is Rinaldi. Right. And as you read this through over the course of a couple of weeks, you texted me a few times about Rinaldi. I did. I, I liked him as a character. Um, here's There's an interview. Uh, I totally forgot to put this. It wasn't in my notes. I wouldn't have forgot if you hadn't brought it. I would have forgot if you hadn't brought it up. There's an interview that Orson Welles did where he was talking about Ernest Hemingway. And in it he says, you know, you don't really... What doesn't come through in Hemingway's novels is his sense of humor. He says, you know, if you knew him personally, you talked to him, he said he had a great sense of humor, mm. but his books are very serious. And I think one of the only places where you get humor in this book is maybe the dialogue between the soldiers, where the soldiers are teasing each other or teasing the priest, or, you know, Rinaldi and, and Henry are mm. teasing each other. And I, I liked that. I liked that bromance. I liked that humor in this very serious book. Yeah, I think it's... It had a very good, like, best frenzy kind of vibe. I, I like the... There are, like, little hints of humor in, I think, Hemingway's books that you really have to look for. And there was actually a part that I was reading toward the end where I actually, like, laughed out loud. It's, it's right as they're... It's, I think it's book four, before they get to the boat. They... Ha, Catherine and Henry are staying in a really nice hotel. They're enjoying things. Henry is completely defected at this point. He, he keeps meeting with these people like the barman and the count to play billiards and just kind of talk about the war. And finally, the barman one night comes to his door and wakes him up because they say he's going to be arrested in the morning. He has to leave now. And um, it's this really tense, serious thing. Like Henry takes him to the bathroom and locks the door and is like, tell me what you know. And he basically says, okay, you, you have to get out now. But I don't know when they're coming, but they're going to come in the morning, so you have to leave. You have to get out of the country, basically. And uh, so he wakes up Catherine and says, we have to go, we have to pack our things. And Catherine says, who's in the bathroom? And he says, it was the barman, he's warned me. And Catherine says, can we trust him? And Henry says, yes, I almost bought him some pipe tobacco once. <laughs> or some pipe tobacco once. As like <laughs> this huge like favor thing. And she goes, okay, good then. <laughs> and I, th I thought that was just really funny that yeah. like, Yes, this is my like one of my greatest friends. We can absolutely trust him. I almost bought him something once. <laughs> and yeah, the, I love the little like bits of humor. Um, it was kind of sad. I mean, this entire book is very sad, but it was kind of sad toward the middle. There was a part that I marked because it was a Rinaldi part that I actually found myself associating with him. And it was after Henry comes back from Milan toward, I think it's book three, where, like, the war is actually starting, he meets back up with Rinaldi, and Rinaldi has changed. In the beginning, he was this, like, very aloof, always, like, uh, kissing Henry and, like, talking and joking with him, and when Henry comes back, he's extremely serious and tired. There's basically one short scene with him where they meet up, they have some dinner, and 
Ronaldo used to like be very lighthearted and joke with the priest, and at dinner he just gets drunk and really angry at the priest. Yeah. And then storms off, and everyone's just saying he's just overworked. He's too tired. And um, there's a part where he's saying, um, "I only like two things. One of them is drinking." And he says it's bad for my work, and the other is over in half an hour or 15 minutes, sometimes less. And another bit of humor, Henry goes, sometimes a good deal less. Um, and he, he says, perhaps I've improved, baby, you do not know, but there are only two things in my work. So all he has in life is work, drinking, and sex. And Henry says, you'll get other things. And he says, no, we never get anything. We are born with all we have, and we never learn. We never get anything new. We all start complete. You should be glad not to be a Latin. And I just, I found that really, really struck a nerve with me that, like, I've been feeling extremely similar, even, like, in the last month, in the last year, that, like, I have work, and when I'm not working, I'm either working with other stuff or I'm just tired. And it really made me sad to, like, for, to see how close to home that hit. And I've had these exact thoughts before, like, there's nothing else in my life, I just work. And I, the only feeling I feel anymore, I'm not happy, I'm not sad, I'm just tired. Yeah, I didn't necessarily relate to that part, but I knew that was the part that you were going to bring up because it was, I don't know, um, it was definitely like a part of the book that stood out to me, right? The, the change in Rinaldi, um, yeah, where he, you know, he, he talks about, you know, all he has is just his work, surgery, right? Sex, drinking, eating and sleeping, and that's it. Um, and, and how he's just kind of lost himself. It was almost sad, too, because it hit me as he was so happy before, and now he's sad that... I mean, from Rinaldi's point of view, what had happened, he basically... His friend had been extremely seriously wounded and sent away to a very far away hospital where he spent months and months there. And so Rinaldi just basically lost a best friend, and then all he had to do was hang out with the other people that he kind of liked and drink and that's it just to make the time pass yeah and i think rinaldi is a very tragic character we don't see him again because he when the retreat happens henry's away and the only mention is he probably made it to some of the cities that they were going to yeah are we still recording it looks dark we are still recording yeah um but yeah um characterization is good i guess we got to talk about um writing style I mean this is the the first book of Hemingway we've done like I said I'm sure we'll do more absolutely one of my favorite authors and there is always a debate amongst Hemingway fans of for new readers what should you start with for me the thing I first started with was The Sun Also Rises and then I went on to this one and then The Old Man in the Sea For Whom the Bell Tolls and then all short stories I'm pretty sure I've read most of what he's written by now um, the most apparent thing when you first start to read a Hemingway book is the style it, it's interesting that we did Fitzgerald and then into Hemingway because they were so very close in time period they were actually friends the part of that like weird expat group Gertrude Stein's like lost generation in Paris but their styles could not be more different that Fitzgerald was extremely flowery he, his prose is extremely pleasant to read Hemingway started his life working for a newspaper and they demanded like very short quick simple sentences very few adjectives report things exactly as they are 
and this is something that never left his writing. He writes extremely simply. Um, the dialogue kind of takes a bit to get used to at first because he's he really doesn't like to do a, the piece of dialogue and then he said or a piece of dialogue and then a different name you know, mentioned or shouted or whatever. A lot of the dialogue, there'll be pages where it's just quotation marks, quotation marks, quotation marks, quotation marks, and you kind of have to keep track in your head of who is speaking. Um, so he has this very bland, it, I wouldn't even say bland, but I'd say it's very simple style. Um, and I think some people really hate it. I It really works for me because it almost makes things feel more realistic. Um, it's almost, when I read a Hemingway book, it's almost like it paints a picture in your mind. And it's like watching a movie where a scene is set, it, the, the outsides, what's happening is briefly described, and then it's just exactly what's happening. If there's dialogue being spoken, it's exactly that dialogue. There's not a lot of subtext. There's not a lot of little descriptors here and there. He just writes it how it happens. Like, did you find any of this, like tough or did you find it enjoyable or did you find that like it was lacking um it is it's it's definitely different from the flowery prose of of f scott fitzgerald um this is my first time doing a hemingway novel right the first thing i ever read from hemingway was his complete short story collection i had Mm -hmm. to do that for a class in college um so i was familiar with his style before how minimalistic it is that's a good way to put it um i enjoy it i enjoy his short stories a lot uh i enjoyed the style of the novel um yeah i don't know there's there's parts here's what i'll say is there were parts of the 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 prose for the great gatsby that i didn't like Mm-hmm. because they were so flowery and it made it hard to understand at, at, at points. Right. With this book, I don't get that. Since it's more minimalist, it's it's easier to understand um, and I still enjoyed it. Uh, he still... He still has a pleasant uh, style, aesthetic mm-hmm. to his prose. Um, there's still a style to it that's still enjoyable. It's just different. Right. Um, yeah, that that's yeah. I could. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that he used to be a, a journalist. Uh, when you consider his writing style, I like. I really like the sparseness when it contrasts with like descriptions of nature. He does this a lot. He does it like when uh, the story begins in the little village. He does it um, as he's like in even in Milan a little bit. He describes some of the surroundings. And then in the boat, as they're going down, he and as the sun starts to come up, he's describing all the area around him. And I really, really like the like simplistic style and then just the lush descriptions of nature. And it reminds me a lot, which I then read later, of Cormac McCarthy. Like, one of the things that we should read later is that... Um, one of my favorite novels from him, I think, is Blood Meridian. And he does the same thing, where it's, it's very straightforward, but his descriptions of landscapes are mind-blowing. It's the way he like paints a scene almost makes it sound like an alien world, and Hemingway does does the same does the same thing. But rather than like making something feel alien and uncomfortable, he does it in a way that just paints it much like a picture, like a piece of art with lots of descriptions of color and lots of descriptions of shape and like uh, construction and like context. It's, it's I think it's really nice. Um, you get less of that in his other novels, which is kind of sad. In The Sun Also Rises, there's a brief bit of nature, but it's mostly in cities. 
this one made me really happy. It's it's I like those descriptions. It made me want to go live in a little Italian village, like surrounded by like streams and mountains and beautiful places like that. Maybe it's a maybe it's a kind of love that he had for the landscape of Europe. I would say that, that yeah. comes through in the writing a bit. Um, I think it's an interesting comparison, like doing Fitzgerald and then Hemingway. Uh, personal story: When me and my girlfriend first started dating, we I mentioned that I like to read, she likes to read, and she asked, she hadn't read much American, many American books, so she asked to borrow a couple of my books, and the two that I started her off were on, were The Great Gatsby and then Hemingway's short story collection, and uh, she started with The Great Gatsby, and it is a tough book in the beginning, like, I read quite a bit, and there's, like you said, there's parts where the prose gets in the way, when you find yourself reading paragraphs multiple times, because you're like, I don't know what he's saying. I, you have to like really pay attention to grammar and oh, does this punctuation mean this thought ends, this description isn't of, connected to the past? And with her, as she read it, she got kind of like stuck in the first few chapters, also English not being her first language, and kind of gave up on Gatsby but found Hemingway extremely easy to read because it's very short descriptions. Um, I read an analysis once on Hemingway and his writing style that even the words he uses are almost the shortest, simplest ways he can say things. He uses very, like, short, um, I think primarily, like, Germanic-rooted words. Like, he would never say, like, investigate, which would come from, like, a Latin root. He would just say, like, look. Yeah. And it's, it's an interesting kind of, like, analysis into his writing. And I don't think everyone could do it. I think there's a lot of people that since Hemingway wrote that probably tried to emulate his style and I think very very few could do it like he could and it's one of those things it's almost like looking at like a Jackson Pollock and like somebody who might be not so familiar with art would be like this is stupid like a, you know a three year old could throw a paint at a wall but because they don't understand it people who first read Hemingway would say like this is stupid like anyone can write just like really simple dialogue oh they do this and they do this and then they went and did this but there's so much beauty like underneath the writing completely agree yeah the other thing that i feel like we need to mention about his style specifically at least for this novel is that each chapter is just a scene yes so there's a scene scene opens at the beginning of the chapter scene ends chapter ends and so you'll have short chapters that are just a page or two pages long and then you'll have other chapters that are longer and the scenes go on for multiple pages mm -hmm. but that's how he punctuates them is there's there's not a single chapter i don't think that has multiple scenes in it no a lot of times we'll start chapters with kind of almost like backfilling like i think it's right at the beginning of 35 um, the previous chapter, or right at the beginning of book five, might be chapter 35, the book four ends with just them eating breakfast and then being arrested. As simple as that. And then it opens with them, like, being driven somewhere, and there's, like, a, a name little argument between guards of, like, go to this town, go to this town, this is where it's best. And then the next chapter starts with just, like, a few-page description of how they've been living. Like, we've been living like this. Like in a cabin with these people, these people serve us, this is what we do, this is what we eat. Even down to like, the, our living room is up here, it's got some comfy chairs, we read books, we play card games, like it's very simple, but it just describes like, 
you know, it almost sets the scene, like you say, and then a scene happens, and then you move on to the next chapter. Yeah. It gives the book really natural pacing, I feel, because nothing feels too long. You, like, you kind of get in and you get out. See, you don't have a chance to get tired of any one specific part because, like, boom, you're on to the next thing. Yeah, and that one specifically what? It's, it's like the scene where they've just escaped, right, to Switzerland, mm-hmm. and they're lying to the Swiss police about why they're in the country and where they're from, and he doesn't necessarily believe that they believe the lie, right, Right, but that's not important. Um, and, yeah, they're arguing. Uh, there, there's a brief argument about where to go, and then they go somewhere, right? And then, yeah, the next chapter is they're there. They're already at the place. They've already been living there for... They've already been living there for a while, and Catherine and him are, yeah, just uh, living there, and she's going to go into labor soon, mm-hmm. right? And that's the next part of the story then. Um, so that's it as far as my notes. Do you have anything else that you wanted to discuss? We got the style. We got the characters. Um, those are the big ones. There, there were a few. Like this book, is one of probably one of my favorites. There's some amazing quotes, kind of that are just thrown throughout this thing. I think it's somewhere in book four. I don't. I couldn't tell you exactly where. I should have marked it better. Um, and I'm probably close to memorizing it. But it's it's a quote that starts. People bring so much courage into this world. So, of course, the world breaks them. And that it goes on to say that it, bra- it breaks and kills people and it breaks the very brave and the very gentle. And that if you aren't one of those, don't worry. It's going to kill you too, but it's just not going to be in a hurry. And it's probably one of the more famous quotes from this story. And it's so sad. It comes in just like this chunk of like a page and a half where he's just hanging out and talking and thinking and it just kind of starts by talking about how night is terrible and how the things in the night can't be explained in the day because they don't exist then and then it just keeps flowing at these really sad thoughts um i don't have much to say about him besides hemingway is one another one of those writers like fitzgerald that makes me wish i could write better but it's this is such a sad book i I feel like there's a certain amount of books that are good in the sense of, like, in a work of art sense, and that if someone asks, like, oh, should I read A Farewell to Arms? Yeah, of course. In the same way that you should, like, see a brilliant movie, but this just happens to be extremely sad. Like, did you get the feeling throughout reading this book? Were you, like, happy and then sad and happy and sad, or was it just kind of dark throughout for you? Um, I don't know. The first part was more boring yes um the part two is when they kind of start their romance so that one i was still a little bored i wasn't like too invested in their romance at that point um third right is where the grittiness of the book it really, starts pretty much when he goes back to the front right when he goes back to the front third part of the book that one is is the really gritty depiction of world war one mm-hmm. that's where the sadness started to come in um, I suppose, and then fourth part of the book, or maybe fifth part of the book, right, is is the happiness of of them in their kind of like romantic bliss together in Switzerland, and that just kind of like I don't know ends so abruptly. Right. So yeah, I guess you have you have yeah, it, it was it was it was it was sad. I suppose during the the third part of the book, um, 
and then that ends right uh and and you've got this happiness to it so yeah um uh, what was i had a thought it just slipped away from me i don't know yeah i i don't think oh um probably i would say even more than just being sad was there was this kind of a a, a mortal fear i had for henry right like i i was expecting him to maybe die right he's a soldier in world war one so i was expecting his character to maybe get killed especially after like all the dangerous situations he is i mean he yeah. deserts he knows they're going to come for him so there's 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 parts where you think like maybe he'll get killed by friendly fire by the italians or you think maybe he'll get killed by the austrians or maybe he'll get killed by the germans or maybe he'll get captured or mm -hmm. you know there's part and then you'll yeah there's like another part after that where after he's like successfully retreated and then now you're like almost certain that he's going to get killed by uh the italian army right that's the part where the what are they the, the, the battle, battle police the battle police just to they've just they're lining just officers up and killing them yeah there. they're just lining officers up and just executing them right and then henry's in line and you know you're almost certain he's gonna die and then he tries to escape and then you think maybe he's gonna die while he's escaping right yeah so yeah there are multiple i think that was the biggest thing was maybe kind of like a a suspense or a thriller thing where you know i was more morally afraid for his character and uh and you get that again like right before catherine dies i suppose mm -hmm. yeah it kind of shifts the last thought i had on it was that i the ending and i read an analysis from someone that said that they viewed, like, so many people view this as a very sad ending, but that in the context of the novel, it should actually be a happy ending. And their argument was that, in the end, Henry has been completely freed of all his responsibility. He is no longer, he doesn't belong to the army anymore. He's escaped arrest. He's in a country where they're not going to mind. And the only other things he had in his life were Catherine and this baby, and they talk very casually about the baby. It's not, I wouldn't say it's any, either of them sound excited about it. Right. They talk briefly about it, like, oh, we'll have the baby, or like when Henry's leaving Milan to go back to the front, she just says, oh, I'll just, I'll just do a great job with it. I'll get the best, I'll go to the best place, I'll have the best doctors, and then we'll just, I'll just deal with it. It'll be fine, whatever. But they don't really ever talk about the reality of it. Henry's never imagines like, oh, this is what it's going to be like when we have this kid. And so suddenly he is, has nothing anymore, but the author's argument was that he has nothing in a good way. He has no more responsibility. He's, he's now a man in a new country with nothing to tie him down. Yeah, I don't know if I would say that it's necessarily happy. I don't know if I would agree with that. I do think it is nice that Henry got to experience the brief happiness that he did have same for Catherine, I suppose. Yeah. That does bring up an interesting point is that neither of these characters seem particularly excited to be parents. I, I mean, we keep tying it back to the previous so, novel, but this, I got a very similar vibe to Gatsby where the Buchanans both, they have this kid who's like three or five or something, but they mention it once in the novel. They mention the baby. Oh, it's like learning to talk or something stupid. And then they're just moving on with their own lives. Yeah, this it's never this, mentioned. The stillbirth isn't necessarily 
it's not it's not devastating for the character Catherine or the character Henry, right? So it's not that devastating for the reader either. It's sad, mm-hmm. right? But it's it's not that devastating um for the reader. Um what was I gonna say though? It it um yeah, it's 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 it's, it's, it's clear. It's um it's almost just more of a plot device for the way to kind of come up with a way for Catherine to die. Right. So you know she almost could have been killed in in another way, killed by you know I, a I some soldier or drowning in the lake or any random of these things. act of violence in it. You know, yeah. It's yeah. I suppose it is something that it's they never mention the baby. So, and even afterwards, after the, they realize that the baby's died, Catherine is still conscious, conscious. She's like bleeding a little bit out and she's not doing well. But all she's saying is like, I just don't feel good. I feel terrible. I'm going to die probably. And the doctor's like, you're not going to die. And she's like, okay, I'm not going to die. But I just feel terrible. Like, are you going to wait for me? He's like, yep, I'm going to be right outside the door. And she's like, okay. And then the doctor's like, yeah, things aren't going well. And then she dies. Like, they, no one seems too focused on the baby. I guess in that situation, like you're not too worried about the baby so much as that your partner lives. But, yeah, it's it's almost kind of like an afterthought. It's only mentioned a couple times. Like, when they're finally escaping to Switzerland, that, like, Henry finally comments that, like, Catherine was, like, noticeably pregnant as she, like, gets dressed and packs things. Right. So it is a strange kind of, like, thing that they're ignoring it. And I guess somebody could read into it and say that this is, like, some sort of symbol about, like, not paying attention to the future, just paying attention to, like, the present. But, I don't know, it seemed just kind of strange and, like, two people who are, like, 20 and panicked and don't want to have a baby. And I think there's a lot of that can, that can be read into, like, both of these people, Henry as a soldier and Catherine as a nurse, have seen the worst the world has to offer. And why would they want to bring a kid into that? That, okay, that's a great point. Yeah, because they do, they do start talking about the future for their baby, right? And mm. they talk about how they don't think the war is ever going to end. Right. They talk about thinking that their baby is going to grow up to be, you know, a lieutenant or a general, mm. right? In the same war, fighting the same war that, that, that they were in. Right. So, yeah, it, when you talk about a disillusioned war novel, who would be excited to bring a child into that world that's at war, mm-hmm. to raise a child in that environment, yeah. Yeah, it, it, the ending has a strange description, too. Right before the last paragraph, Henry is with Catherine, and I think the sem- sentence is as simple as, like, I was with her, she was unconscious for a long time, and then I knelt by her bed and cried, and then she died. And that's pretty much all you get, and then the last paragraph is just him talking to the doctor and saying, is there anything I can do now at this point today? And the doctor's saying, no, there's nothing to do. You should just get to your hotel and get some rest. And then he just stays for a while and then finally leaves. And you can read a lot into that as the only indication of sadness you get is that Henry cries. And that like a page or so before, he's saying, please, please, God, don't let her die. But I wonder... I guess the book really accurately represents that, like, numbness when something terrible does happen. But you, as he walks out into the rain, I wonder if most people imagine him as sad. I wonder if Hemingway wrote it to imagine him as, like, walking to the rain back to wherever he's going and sad. Or if he's thinking, I'm just moving on. Huh. 
Yeah, I did not picture him as just moving on quite yet. I almost right. did the second read because the entire second half of this book has been him moving. He moved from Milan, and then as soon as he got back to the front, he was on the move. He was driving up to the towns, up to the front. Once the retreat happened, he was moving away from the front. He's moving away from the front with the engineers. He goes off the road. He's walking and marching away from the front. He's running from the soldiers, the battle police, as they're shooting people. He hops on a train he shouldn't be on and moves. I it, The way that the book is written, it makes it sound like he's not back in like the cities of Italy for more than a few weeks before him and Catherine have to leave to Switzerland. So right. it almost feels like this one big escaping. And I think that during that part, when it just says that he walks out into the rain... I didn't get the impression that he stays in Switzerland. I get the impression that he's thinking, like, I have to leave here now. And I don't know where he goes. I think that's just part of the the way the novel's supposed to flow. Yeah. Yeah. What book are we going to read next? Okay, so good point. Uh, yeah, so next episode, episode three, will be on Toni Morrison's Beloved. I have that book. And that'll go up at the end of March. Um, I do want to mention... Please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Um, on Twitter, we're at Bookish Things YT. Facebook, Bookish Things Podcast. Instagram, Bookish Things Podcast. What's the YT stand for? Uh, YouTube. And that's where oh. you can find the episodes are on SoundCloud and on YouTube. And we'll also put them up on Stitcher and iTunes as well. Yeah, you got them all. So... Um, Another thing I want to mention is we will have a link to um, visit the Fisher House Foundation, which is uh, a nonprofit that helps uh, veterans and families of veterans as well. Uh, so there'll be a link to that in the description box for the episode. So you can go to that website, and make a donation or volunteer with them. Cool. Have you have you read Beloved before? I have read Beloved before. I, I have too, but it was again a long time ago in college. I read it like maybe last year for an African American lit class. So that makes sense. Um, I have a question. Yeah. Are, are we ever gonna have more than two people on this? Maybe. Oh. Yeah. We might have a guest for the next episode. I'm excited. Yeah. Cool. All right. Anything else to say? No, I think that's. Do you have anything you want to add? No. I don't have any charities to plug either. All right. Well, I'll uh, see you next episode. Cheers. Bye.